0: Cheers to another episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. I'm your guide, P.J. Weintuttle, on this journey of stories showcasing the people behind the wonderful world of wine, where we dive into conversations ranging from terroir, viticulture, to favorite music, superpowers, and more. Please enjoy this episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. Ben, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, you know sit down with me to, to chat for a little bit.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate
0: it. Yeah. Uh, You know, I'm so I'm here in Oregon and I've heard, uh, you know, obviously a lot about the harvest being fast and furious for us here, you know, and California has had quite a a unique harvest as well. But I haven't heard anything about what harvest has been like for, uh, you know, for Colorado. Uh,
1: Well, my harvest was pretty quick um, from my vineyard like it all comes in within like two or three weeks to be honest so it's only if i'm getting fruit from someone else or like if i'm doing like a sparkling b- base that kind of prolongs it so i got right. some, i got some riesling in for like a method champenoir mm, beginning of september and then i got my last grapes in we picked uh cabernet sauvignon november 8th so recently. Wow. yeah
0: yeah very 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 recently was uh was do is the 2023 vintage looking looking pretty good for you
1: yeah i mean i'd say like um kind of lower on yield we were we were unfortunate late may we we had like a um like a hailstorm at the vineyard just around like bud break and that kind of wiped out some primary buds on those early pushing varieties like chardonnay um so our yields were down but um yeah, I mean the wines are good. I mean like the cab is the cab that we just picked is 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 looking really good. Riesling is great. The Mephachampagne Noir based wine is good. Like we had a small crop of Pinot Noir as well this year, but yeah, all looking good.
0: Well, good. Can I can't wait to hear more about it when, you know, when you uh, get to release it. That'll be fun.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> So you know, kind of starting off in in your wine journey, you know, you were a salesman for Latent Wine Merchant in in London, yep. and uh, you know, you, you've always kind of gone around saying, you know, you're selling Bordeaux and Burgundy wines to silly people at silly prices. <laughs> uh, how did how did all that come about? Like, why why sell why why sell wine at such a young age?
1: Yeah, I mean, I. You know, I, I think uh, I got I got introduced to to wine pretty early when I was um, like stocking shelves basically at, at Marks and Spencer, which is like a grocery store in the in the UK. And the um, the lady who kind of ran the wine department was kind of fun and eccentric. And I used to have to put the wine away, and it kind of intrigued me. And then I went to to college and kind of you know drank more wine and um, you know, got, got interested in it from like a scientific perspective, I'd say, because my right. undergraduate was like animal science because I wanted to be a vet originally. And um, after graduating, I actually took a job uh, in a pharmaceutical public relations company briefly. <laughs> and um, that was not interesting at all. <laughs> and I uh, can imagine. Yeah, I was just kind of like, you know, wine is more of a passion and... Um, yeah was just looking for you know a, a wine job in london just to stay in london because london's a lot of fun basically and um yeah saw a job advertised um for Leighton's, which i really didn't know much about the history of it <laughs> but it turns out it's quite a, a famous um wine store in london and um yeah got introduced to it and uh lots of lots of wines that i had no idea where they should be in a cellar and and uh how to pronounce them but um <laughs> Uh, yeah, like I uh, had to kind of deliver these wines on a push bike to all the ambassador's houses in in and around like Elizabeth Street and Sloan Square, Victoria Station. So yeah, that was that was really kind of my first introduction to to fine wine. And I mean, I only say it's like silly wine to silly people just because if you can afford to spend a thousand pounds on a bowl of wine, it's it's kind of ridiculous, you know, like
0: it, it, it kind of is. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think that is kind of, kind of silly myself, but you know, if I had that sort of money, maybe I would do it. I, I don't know.
1: No bottle of wine is worth that amount of money. Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> managing a vineyard and knowing how much it costs to farm and how much it costs to, to make sure it's expensive when you're small production, but a lot of those wines are not small production and they're still no. a thousand pounds a bottle you know? So it's just what the market, uh, you know, can, can uh, sustain, I suppose, um, and the, the image that they've built up over the years. But, um, yeah, then I went uh, to work for another wine merchant. Uh, if you know, like Fuller's London Beer, Fuller's Pro- London Pride.
0: Yeah, yeah no, I've, I haven't heard of it.
1: Brewery in Chiswick, um, making like cast conditioned but they had three fine wine stores at the time. Um, in and around like West London uh, one of them was like Ravenscore Park where I lived the other was like Chiswick and then I think there was one in like High Street Kensington and um, yeah I started selling wine for those guys like uh, and the, the manager of that store was married to Teresa Nobolo who um, is from the, from New Zealand from the house of Nobolo which w- was acquired by one of the big guys many years ago but um, yeah, I got, I spoke to her and got a harvest placement in New Zealand, in Marlborough, and that um, kind of, just to see if I wanted to pursue winemaking as a career, really, and it was um, it was it beautiful, you know, that was 1998, I think, just kind of sitting in the Marlborough area and just, I remember like one moment where I was pumping juice, Sauvignon Blanc juice into a 6,000 gallon tanker to get shipped to Auckland because they had two wineries and and that that happened a lot of shipping between Marlborough and Auckland and um, just sitting on the top of the tanker waiting for it to fill it, watching the sunset over Marlborough (laughs) was pretty beautiful. I was like, this is all right, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, that that would be amazing.
1: Uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm just curious to to go back a little bit. so you were, you know, you were at, at Layton's Leighton's, uh, and you ended up, you know, d- like delivering four, like four, balancing four cases of wine on on your push bike.
1: Yeah, there was a big like pa- like front front basket that you was deep, and you could like fit four full cases, like twelve bottles. Which you, you know at first it seemed a bit silly, but <laughs> <laughs> you kind of kind of got used to it. Like um, I,
0: I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure you did get used to it, but I mean, holy cow! um Have you been able to, you know, use those skills any other time in
1: in your life? <laughs> Just like balancing skills. Like the hardest yeah. part was, hardest part was getting it off, as you can imagine. Like when you put the stand up on the bike, how do you get it off without it falling off?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a whole balancing thing. That that was oof. Did yeah. did uh? at any time did you know do you have any catastrophes where it kind of you know fell over and you broke some expensive bottles or anything
1: no not not on that but i do remember um, like clients that were much closer the, the store was so close to some very you know very posh area of london so you would like wheel the dolly down the street mm-hmm. you know the push cart down the street oh yeah and, and, and like someone had ordered like you know just some soda water that back then came in a Glass bottle, like a small glass bottle, and it was shrinking, right, right. but the plastic had been torn open. And I was pushing oh. it down the street, like you know, on top of four cases of wine, and a bottle kept falling out here and in there. <laughs> just like this, <laughs> this trail of soda water bottles down the street. And I was like, well, what do they want me to do?
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Funny. Yeah. oh so you, you know, you were, you had just finished, you know, um, Pressing you know some Savion Blanc on you know a six thousand gallon uh, tanker and just looking at the sunset in Marlborough and you're like it just doesn't get much better than this, uh, yeah. And so where did that where did that lead 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 you to?
1: Well, I um, I had started like applying for a scholarship through the Rotary Foundation, um, and each district within Rotary clubs worldwide still still offers these rot- Rotary ambassadorial scholarships that you compete for amongst the rot- Rotary clubs in the district, and so you know it's an opportunity to go to another country essentially and kind of assimilate into that country and um and and study something that you want on a graduate level, and so um, yeah, I applied for the scholarship and and was lucky enough to win it, and uh, at the same time I was. Applying for the to the University of Adelaide in South Australia to study enology, which is the chemistry of winemaking. making, and um, yeah, got offered got offered the position and and um, yeah, moved to Australia in two thousand, like to to study in Adelaide, and um, back then there were only like five universities in the world that offered like an enology program. And I'd, I'd originally applied for to South Africa, but the, um, the course was only offered in Afrikaans. And I was like, well, I don't really want to study organic chemistry in a different language. So,
0: Yeah, that, um, that would be hard.
1: Yeah, I, I ended up moving uh, to Australia where I'd spent time previously. I'd spent quite a lot of time in Australia, to be honest. So it was very normal for me. But yeah, it was a fantastic um, program, like really hands-on. And uh, yeah, probably some of the best days of my life spent there, I would say, studying enology. It's fun.
0: Very, very cool. Oh, I know your dad plays an important you know, part in, in your overall story. Um, you know, what did he have any, how did he um, help you or, you know, uh, you know kind of like be your, be your cheerleader or whatnot, you know, through all this phase of, of your life?
1: Well, um, yeah, he was—he was really a big influence. More so, after you know, he—he he died in two thousand seven. Like, right. and, um, and we, you know, he—he he was definitely very supportive of of me going to Australia and studying winemaking. I mean, I think he had kind of given up on me before that, to be honest, and uh, <laughs> would, thought I was just going to travel the world and as a backpacker for the rest of my life and not get a real job. But um, then kind of wine, the kind of wine bug hit and kind of, you know, it's something that's, I think it's something that, you know, I'm his age now. Like, so something that you're really into when you get a little bit older and kind of fascinating. And so he, I could see how it, it was something that he was interested in and therefore it was something that he was like, well, that's cool that my son's 24 and has figured out, that he doesn't want to be an accountant, a lawyer, an insurance broker or a banker, you know, which is like basically <laughs> the, the four options that you have when you're in England. I feel like when you when you uh, get to, a, you know, when you finish a lot of schooling, you always just end up getting pushed into those fields um, because those right. are the ones you know you're going to make money in. <laughs> but uh, exactly. But yeah, right. But I chose the 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 path that you're probably not going to make any money in, <laughs> but just as, as a passion, you know? Um, right. so, so yeah, he, uh, he passed in 2007, but, um, yeah, he was around for, for my move to, to Colorado and to kind of see that all through, um, uh, but i not to start my, my first winery.
0: Yeah. And weren't you all like talking about doing a winery or something together before you passed?
1: Yeah, we, I was, um, I was making wine, uh, at a winery in Southwest Colorado and, um, there was an opportunity to, to kind of buy into it and be an owner. And so we were talking right. about that, but, um, but yeah, that, that never materialized, um, you know, and it was, and it was a good thing that it didn't happen, but, uh, obviously it kind of, uh it put like a, a bug in my ear about about doing something on my own which you know i've always i've always felt like i um have a complete disrespect for authority and don't want to be told what to do so um especially when i feel like i could do it better myself so uh yeah like being your own boss has has always kind of been that thing that um that excited me most i think
0: Yeah, I I can imagine. Then, you know, after his passing, you just kind of, you got into uh, a truck and you, what, you drove like 25,000 miles across the U.S., you know, going and getting equipment. I mean, that's, uh, how long did that take you?
1: Uh, It Actually, only, we we accumulated all the equipment in in like a couple of months. Um, And like, yeah, I think after after he died you know only t- it took me like 12 months to put together like a business plan and and um find a space in denver to to lease to start a winery and um i was still working down in um in the four corners at that time and um yeah there was just that that moment that i was like yeah now's the time just say goodbye to the current boss uh, and um, yeah, move on and, and bought like an old truck and a trailer. And, and, and like, it was like back then 2000, like May, 2008, gas was like really expensive, like it, oh yeah you know, the, great, the great recession, right? Like, so, so like, I remember like gas prices being like eight bucks a gallon or something. Um, yeah, so like the cost of, of actually like hiring a company to do it was even more expensive than doing it myself. And so um, so yeah, we just kind of drove around and, and picked up used equipment from various places all the way up the the west coast, and then uh, even into kind of Walla Walla and, and down back down in into denver so yeah that was it was stressful, but it was uh, it was actually quite a lot of fun. Got some great photos of uh, strapping tanks to trailers and not having enough space and. Strapping yeah. the fermentation bins to the end of the tank, hanging off the trailer.
0: <laughs> I, I can only imagine. Do you still have that old Dodge truck that you, that you drove around, you know, no. gathering all that?
1: No, that, that got sold uh, many years ago.
0: And so that kind of brings you to, you know, starting like the the first urban winery, uh, you know, infinite monkey theorem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you know that you're setting a a trend at that time for urban winery or you're just like, this felt like the, or just felt right?
1: I I think it was all very deliberate. Like, um, I had, I was working with a friend of mine, actually my best man, a guy called David Roy. And we did a harvest together in 2006. And we would always hang out and just talk about how wine was just, so pretentious and so unapproachable and and we were both young i mean i was i was 28 like he was 24 and we were like it doesn't have to be like this you know why why don't we just you know figure out how to do something different and so you know it was a plan that i think had formulated from speaking to so many people over the years like even you know you can you can definitely relate it to my time at Leighton's you know selling silly wines uh, to expensive people and and, and, right. and the, you know the, the way wines were talked about and um, And then I think having spent time in Colorado and spent time selling wine in Denver but other wineries, it, it just kind of started to make sense because like obviously Colorado is better known for its beer um than wine but you know there was a brewery kind of popping up on every corner in denver and it was like well why why couldn't wine be like this um you know why at the time i was like very kind of anti-terroir and just like this is such (laughs) nonsense you know like (laughs) uh, which, which for the most part it is but um you know it's a it tells a good story like um but uh, yeah, so why not? Why not put a winery in, in downtown, like in a city? Like why not um, embrace city culture? You know, you don't need to have Tuscan style facades on your wall, and you know, like rolling hills and countryside to, to make good wine. You can make good wine anywhere. And right. so, you know, why not? Why not do it in a back alley in, in downtown Denver in, a, in an old Quonset hut? And um, Yeah, it like quickly, I mean, we made the first wines and everyone in the city was excited about it. It was definitely a time when, uh, you know, lots of small restaurants were starting who were very kind of conscious about where they were sourcing ingredients from. and, And having a good Colorado wine was something that, you know, was was missing. And they, and they were all my friends because they were all the same age as me. So they were all kind of embarking on starting, like, these cool restaurants at the same time as I was starting a winery. And it all just kind of made sense. So, you know, the, the name of the winery was somewhat irreverent, but but really uh, – but also very deliberate. Uh, and, the, and the artwork was was all very, um, like, Bansky-esque graffiti style. Um, and the story was intriguing. And so – yeah, and the wine was good, so so it it quickly became um, talked about, and, and I would say the most talked about winery in Colorado for sure. And then, of course, it, that whole kind of disrupting the wine industry, you know, became more and more top of mind. And and it was like, well, what's the craziest thing you can do, you know? So let's let's put wine in a can before anyone else was was doing it uh, in the United States at least um, right. other than Coppola I mean they, they, they were doing it but honestly that brand at that time was was a dead brand um, because they couldn't produce they could only produce those 187 mil cans once a year because Bull Corporation only ran that can once a year so they had to basically determine how much they would sell for an entire year 12 months before <laughs> So it was impossible. That's crazy. Like, and, and the wine was like from Indiana or something. Anyway, it was like Moscato or another nonsense with a straw. So we, yeah, we we were the first to, to put wine in a, a two fifty mil can, and to I would say to make to make it cool to, to kind of really um, address the, the accessibility of the packaging, and um, you know, certainly where, where when you're living in Colorado. Uh, you can kind of that can make that makes a lot of sense, you know, from a pack in, pack out, um,
0: it, and yeah, it and, it, and and it does. But uh, I mean, you you spent like two years of R and D to make sure that you know the whole canned wine was actually good. And when you actually got through the the R and D, uh, you launched it at the Aspen Food and Wine uh, Festival in twenty eleven and you you just didn't launch it uh you got like a smuggler mine or something there in aspen and you had all the the mining carts lined with with plastic and ice and it was all loaded up i mean that had to be fun
1: yeah that was cool that was like where's the craziest place you can like throw a party um (laughs) and looking back there was probably a lot of liability issues around that. but um yeah i mean what's the biggest What's the biggest wine festival in the United States? Certainly Aspen Food and Wine, and right. uh, yeah, where can you kind of make a big splash? And yeah, so we we were friends with the owners of um, of the mine, at least our, our publicist was, and um, yeah, we we went up there and we were like, yeah, we could we could do this, we could throw a party up here, and um, yeah, it was, it was cool. They were like. People get kind of entered on one level and got like a mine tour up to the top level where they grab the can of wine from an old ore truck lined with plastic, and there was a a DJ up there. And you know, I think we got like 85 noise complaints from the from the residents <laughs> of the mine, and ultimately we're shut down around midnight. But um, not before making a making a big kind of splash, and then everyone started talking about it, which was cool. Um, and we launched that with just one can. It was a, it was a black muscat from Colorado, which had been aged in a barrel. It was it was actually delicious. It, it was really cool. Um, and um, the day of that party, we were on one of the panels at Food and Wine. With uh, it was it was which wine to pair with a taco cart, and it was led by Richard Betts, who who is a master song. And on the panel was Charles Beeler, uh from Beeler Family Wines that you've right, heard right. of. And um Andy Flowers from the Flowers Winery and Bobby Stuckey from Frasca and you know, previously the French Laundry and the Lil' Nell, and um and then one one other guy who I forget, but yeah, we kind of we were all talking about like alternate pack- packaging and stuff, and I and I started uh, we started talking about my black muscat can and Charles Beeler sticks a pencil in it and shotguns it and throws it on his shoulder. <laughs> I told him to do that. But it was funny. And there was, you know, a hundred people in there, like, thinking, this is ridiculous. Well, wine in a can. And after it, after it, like, the owner of the Texas Rangers came up to me and was like, you want to sell this wine at the stadium? I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: of course. Yeah, why not?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was funny. But yeah, uh, that was... Um, well, I think those are the thing, kind of fun things you can do when you're a small company that's very agile and, and you know, not, not scared to kind of shake things up a little bit. I, I think it was quite easy to do just to kind of think about how you could, like, change things when it was an industry that resisted change and still is.
0: Right. Oh, it, yeah, it's... There are a lot of traditions that are set in place. I mean, just, you know, talking about, you know, the foil on, on bottles. I mean, people are like, no, we can't get rid of foil on bottles, but it's like, but it would be a good thing to do for the climate. And, you know, what is the actual purpose of the foil? And, you know, so it's, you know, there, there are a lot of, um, a lot of things that people are stuck in their ways in, in the world of wine.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like heavy bottles, which are just nonsense, like foils, which are completely irrelevant. Uh, Wire, you know, crown cages and what, you know, what wire hoods for sparkling wine when the same wine has been under a crown cap for the last 12 to three years. (laughs) You know, like, why not just put another crown cap on it? So it doesn't need that. Funny
0: exactly exactly and and getting into the sparkling a little bit you uh you know you did the Colorado's first ever method champen wall sparkling wine out of uh, arborino grapes
1: yeah. yeah that's right that was it was a while ago like maybe i don't know 2013 2012 something like that um, but yeah, yeah. arborino seemed like a good grape to make sparkling wine with and um, yeah I didn't know a ton about the The practical uh, method. Um, So, got uh, we had sponsored like a bike race in the previous year called the USA Pro Challenge, and um, I had met a bike rider called Craig Roma, who was formerly the head winemaker at Schramsberg, and so he um, he was consulting because he had left there, and uh, yeah, started talking about method champenois, and he was like, "Well, yeah, I'm I'm a consultant, I'll I'll help you out." I was like, "Okay." So yeah, we we worked together for a couple of years and figured out how to do that kind of very very like hands on, very small production. Um, you know, if talking about like a grower's champagne, I mean, this is more geeky than that. 180 cases, like hand riddled, hand disgorged, no dosage, single vineyard, like everything. You know, everything done by hand, like right. no neck freezer, like no, you know, like yeah. So that was yeah, that was fun. My wife told me I had to make one; otherwise, she'd divorce me. So we did it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you gotta keep that the wife's happy, most definitely. That's right. Uh, coming from England, I mean, like the and uh, the sparkling in in England is just booming. You know, Jackson family is buying wine or buying property over there. You know, uh, champagne families are buying property. Uh, I know next to nothing about English sparkling. Are there like any recommendations or anything that, that you might have?
1: Yeah, there's so many of them now. Um, like Chapel Down is probably the m- most well-known producer, maybe the biggest producer from Kent um, with vineyards, I think, in Kent and Sussex. Uh, another one called Timber, But, yeah, I mean, they, they've been making like exceptional sparkling wine for the last 10 years, maybe even longer than that. Um, And that's, you you know, that's definitely because like climate change has raised, you know, a degree or two and enabled um, what was fairly impossible and infrequent, um, you know, made made it more practical and and, um, commercially viable. To produce, you know, consistent wine year in year out, and certainly when it comes to like sparkling base wine, remember it doesn't have to get ripe particularly. Um, it's not about that. Right. It's not about hang time or anything because they certainly don't have hang time there. But, um, right. but yeah, they, they're they're making really great sparkling wines, and I think a few of them are available in the US, and and I, I know they're starting to export more because their production is ramped up considerably.
0: Yeah. Well, I was just curious about that. I, I appreciated. it. Um, you're mentioning Kent and, you know, your your label, uh, The Ordinary Fellow, was inspired after a, a pub there in Kent. What uh, what was the name of the pub and what, what brought you that inspiration?
1: Yeah, The Ordinary Fellow was a pub, is or was a pub uh, in Kent in my home county. Uh, that I used to go to um, with my father when I was younger, and just a very warm, comfortable place to to relax after a, a day's work, and you know, have a few beers and kind of put the world to rights and go home. And um, you know, I, I was reminded of the pub um, after my father died. Uh, he had he had collected these pub cards, which back in the 60s were found in the in the back of cigarette packs so i think in the us if you're a smoker you you would get baseball cards in the back of cigarettes back in the day
0: yeah Yeah.
1: and but in england there were pub cards and, and it basically was a card size and it had the um it had the uh the symbol or the logo from the pub, like the sign that hung outside the pub on the front. And then it talks about the history of the pub on the back. And and um, I found this big pile of them um, that my mother gave me after he died. And uh, I was like, oh, these are cool. And so like I framed them. And um, yeah, there's maybe 500 of them like on a frame on the wall. And wow. uh, I was looking for kind of inspiration for the a name for my new winery and um i was like oh yeah the ordinary fellow and um the uh on the label the the kind of front logo um is actually the blade sign that's the sign that hung from the, the silhouette of the sign that hung from the pub uh, right. which, which is meant to be um, the silhouette of king george the who uh considered himself an ordinary fellow
0: that's, that is very cool. That's, you know, I, I read that, you know, it was inspired, but I just hadn't heard the, you know, the actual backstory or anything of that. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So when you look at the, you've got part of my back label behind you, like it's, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, there's, there's like uh lots of pub references there and there's a forklift with a pint of Guinness on it. Cause all winemakers do is drive forklifts and drink beer. And then uh, it's quite an old joke. And then there's like the Free Lions, which is emblazoned on the English soccer jerseys. And um, there's a, there's dart and there's like the angle of release and the speed of that you throw a dart at and there's a dart board and there's all sorts of like references on the, on the um, under label um, of my, of my bottle, which has two labels, like an under label and an ounce of sleeve. Uh, yeah. And
0: I, yeah. And I,
1: is... yeah,
0: yeah. And I was just curious, like, how did you, I mean, you've set like, you know, uh, the, the wine in the can, and then, you know, urban winery and then this, I mean, why, what made you think of doing something like this to like, be different and unique?
1: Um, it was really more like, um, I mean, I think I've always kind of pushed boundaries in terms of packaging. Um, and and with this, it was it was coming up with like a concept that was kind of like this hidden imagery, like this like a codex, and trying mm-hmm. to bring it to life um, on a yeah on a three dimensional bottle. Um, and so we, we kind of came up with the, the under label, which is basically a story of my journey as a winemaker, with lots of very personal um, imagery on it. Uh, like there 's a silhouette my my family my my dog who I just let out <laughs> there 's like uh an old black beanie that I would wear when i 'm making wine oh, like which is right here <laughs> That's at all. Uh, you know there's, there's there's a lot of kind of cool stuff on there, but there 's also a a story if you take the sleeve off you'll you 'll read it it 's very flowery story of me meeting a bear when i 'm camping in Colorado and um the descriptive words in the story come through the outer sleeve to complete the tasting note so you can Mm -hmm. align when you align it correctly the tasting notes are completed on the outer sleeve and there's certain call outs that come through on the artwork and um just the engineering that was required to bring that together i don't there's one thing designing it from an artist standpoint right but then to like bring it to life so that the sleeve would not fall off and so that it was in the correct place and so that it would rotate and so that the 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 words um came across correctly when it was aligned correctly i mean just an amazing feat of engineering and um yeah i mean i think a picture paints a thousand words i think uh 80 of customers still make Wine purchase decisions on the label alone, um, so I do think it's important to have a to have a good label, um, one that tells a story, and um, it kind of sucks you in, and then and it also allows the customer to kind of interact with it, which you know I think is cool. Certainly, when it's at home on your dining table, but also if you're in a restaurant and you had bought the bottle and and you were kind of like playing around with it, you know, as you were talking, right. it would provoke conversation, which is what wine, in general, does anyway. Like when you're just drinking it, it does it. But then, like, you know, it's it's a work of art on its own. The wine is a work of art, and the label is. So I think right. it's, so. It's it's like a complete package. Um, and yeah, I, I don't. Right. Think, I think a lot of people don't pay enough attention to the to the wine label. Or just come up with something that's so generic and that you know it's uh you know th- th- this is someone's put a lot of thought wow. into this took it took a lie over 12 months to, to come wow. up with it so it's it's very cool
0: it, it is very cool and i can only imagine you know i'm you know uh being an engineer at heart you know all the, the engineering that it took to actually you know put that on and, and make it happen i can I can only imagine it's, it's very unique. And it also goes to show just how forward thinking you are. And uh, uh, it is gorgeous. It, it is amazing. Uh, and also, the other night I poured your uh, 2021 Pinot, And uh, I was just right off uh, to just two facts that just got me uh, all giddy about it when I when I looked at it in the glass. I mean, it was just a gorgeous Pinot, uh, just, just looking at it. I was like, Ooh, I'm in, I'm in for a a treat. And then also to see that the, that the vineyard that it came from the Hawks nest vineyard is at 6,800 feet in elevation. And, you know, I'm, I'm here in Oregon, you know, so for us, anything, you know, above 900 feet to 1100 feet is. Over the top, you know, as far as elevation goes. Yeah, uh, I am. It just, I, 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 it just boggles my mind at six thousand eight hundred feet. You know how Pinot is able to to thrive.
1: Yeah, it's definitely well. That's how you get like cool climate when you are basically in a hot climate, right? You you go up in elevation, and of course, Colorado is fairly high anyway, right? Den- Denver's a mile high. Palisade on the western slope is at 4,500 feet and then southwest uh, Colorado like Cortez where my Riesling Chardonnay and Cab are grown is at 5,800 feet and and the vineyard called the Hawks Nest is at 6,800 feet and it's definitely a marginal climate I would say you know Um, uh, bud break is obviously later and then um, the potential to get an early fall frost is is considerable come like mid-October. But um, yeah, just a just a really great vineyard site planted by uh, this chap called Guy Drew four years ago. So it's only been, it's only the second crop off of it, um, and he's growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay there. But yeah, just like when you're talking about the color, it, I think it's the color of real, real Pinot Noir that hasn't been adulterated by Syrah or something, um, and just you know, great natural acidity. I mean, the the color of it belies, like, the power of it and the intensity of it, because, like, you put, you smell it and you're like, whoa, and then you put it in your mouth and it's like, it's, it's mm-hmm. like a serious wine, you know? Um, and uh, a lot of people I pour it for who who don't know anything about Burgundy are like, oh, it's very light. And I'm like, <laughs> you've got no idea what
0: you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, I, you know, once I got past, you know, just being blown away by the, the elevation and just the beautiful color in the glass, I I loved how velvety smooth it was and how the tannins were just nicely integrated and all the fruit was just showing in, in all the right places. I was, um, you know, I I don't think, I think that's the first time I've had a Pinot from uh, Colorado and I, I was a little apprehensive, but I was very pleasantly surprised. And so, you know, thank you for that. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you. No, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a variety that, um, I've I've had like a love hate relationship with for 25 years, I'd say. Um, and really my first real opportunity to, to make a Pinot Noir in maybe 15 years. So yeah, it is, uh, it's it's cool. I mean, as soon as you got it in the winery, you know it's going to be a good wine. I mean, it's, the fruit was good. The fermentation smelled good. You could tell it was going to be good. Um, and they just spent eight months in some neutral French oak barrels. So they were like eight, nine-year-old barrels. So no real well, influence in there. Um, yeah. Yeah, and just, just well-balanced fruit coming off the vine, which is really makes the winemaking job pretty easy, I'd say.
0: I, I can imagine. And, you know, I have, I have your cab here um, and I haven't had a Colorado cab either. You know, we were talking about 6,800 feet for the cool climate for Pinot, And I think you said that your cab vineyard is at 5,800 feet. Yeah. How does, how does that ripen enough to, you know, to, to make a cab?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Cause like, yeah, you would think um, like the growing season is, in Colorado is between like 155 and 170 days compared to Napa, that's like 250 days. <laughs> so it's very short, right? But um, at high elevation, you get like high concentrations of ultraviolet light, which kind of speed up ripening. Um, and, and, and when you look at the number of degree days, uh, you know, we have the same number of degree days as Napa in Colorado. So depending okay. on the site, uh, like a later ripening varietal like cab um, will get ripe. Some years, depending on where it's grown it, it, won't and it's just very herbaceous. But um but yeah, like if you get if you get like a a long extended fall, you know, you can certainly ripen it. And um you know like I think I said earlier on, I, I didn't pick the cab till like five days ago. So so that's that's pushing it, you know. Um Right. I, yeah. And then we had a frost, you know, so it was a good job I picked it. But um
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so you have two younger children, um, you know, and like your father played a nice influence on, you know on your trajectory and like what, what you have done, have you given any thought to like what kind of legacy that you want to leave them?
1: Um, I mean, really, you know, just to try and be around for them all, I think, and just be a good dad is, is like, and not, and not be working the whole time, (laughs) which is tough when you have a winery. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, uh, I think it's. I think every winemaker parent, you know, probably thinks it's pretty cool for their kids to grow up in that environment. Like, just it's not a, a usual career path. Mm-hmm. It's like it's. It can be very beautiful. It, it can certainly like show them the the meaning of hard work because until you've done a harvest, you don't really understand how hard that can be. I don't think. Um, yep. you, you know, I, I, read, there's a great article, uh, I'll, I'll try to send it to you, but it's, it compares, uh, work in a harvest to, to living on a pirate ship, <laughs> but it's like <laughs> no showers and just everyone hates each other. And just, oh man. Um, you know, that
0: would be an interesting article.
1: It's really great. It's a really great story. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I, I yeah, I hope that, you know that they they understand the value of, of of hard work and and that we get to to experience cool stuff together, you know, and and whatever they end up doing, you know, is 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 uh, hopefully influenced by by that at some stage.
0: Yeah, I I can only imagine. I you know I have a fifteen year old daughter and you know I try to do the best that I can for her as well. So it's doing the best that we can is all we can do.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. They're still yep. pretty young mine like 9 and 7 so got to I got That's wait. awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have some rapid fire questions here for you and then I'll I'll get you out of here.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh favorite artist to listen to during harvest.
1: Ooh. Uh Well, this this year I've been listening to um a lot of, uh, like the Wu-Tang clan, actually. That's (laughs) awesome. I think the, uh, when the, uh, people come in (laughs) to taste wine, they're not quite expecting it. Sometimes I I
0: can only, (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, your favorite indulgent food.
1: Oh, um, That's it, that's it well you know like what i what i really eat right now would just be a good bowl of green chilli oh just, that would and
0: that it's a perfect time of the year for that too
1: yeah yeah it's so complex and interesting
0: yes if you could choose a superpower
1: what would it be um to look into the future
0: Nice. Harvest notes. Are they digital or handwritten?
1: Uh, neither. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's great. That is great. Uh, and the last book you read, it could be physical, it could be audible, or it could even be like a, say like a podcast or something.
1: Oh, the last book I read. Um, well, actually I've been, I've been listening to podcast called the wine Blast. Uh, by um, Peter and Susie, I can't remember their last names, but they're two MWS who are very funny, irreverent, yes. and and also yeah very entertaining wow. and and have a lot of knowledge to share. If you're really interested in one.
0: yeah, no, that that is a great podcast. I I've listened to that a handful of times myself. All right. Well, that's all the questions that I have for you. Do you have, you know, any questions or anything for me before we sign off?
1: Uh, no, I don't think so. Thank you Dave, for oh, uh, yeah for doing this. I appreciate it, and um, yeah, hopefully you get to try those other wines, and and they're not too bad. So.
0: Yeah. No, I'm I'm very much looking forward to it, and just you know taking my time, just enjoying all the hard work that that you have done, and. Uh, you know, I can't wait to, to dive into them. So thank you so much for that too.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. If you got any questions on them, just shoot me an email.
0: I will do so. All right. Well, thank you.
1: Thank you. Have a good one.
0: Thank you for joining me on this flavorful voyage through the world of wine on the Wine notes podcast. I've been your host and guide AJ Winesettel, and It's been an absolute pleasure sharing these captivating stories with you, but alas, like the last sip of a fine vintage are tying together it? but don't fret my wine loving friends the cellar doors of the wine notes podcast will always remain open waiting for you to return and explore new conversations stories and musings from the captivating people behind the magical world of wine before you go hit that subscribe button on youtube apple Podcasts, and spotify and don't forget to leave a sparkling five-star review to help spread the word and to our glasses. Clink again. Remember to savor the light's moment and let the spirit of wine and camaraderie linger on your palate. Cheers and as always, may your wine glass be full your heart be light and your journey be delightful.